Shalom. I've been asked all week what I thought of Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech before the joint session of Congress. What did you think? Huh? Were you convinced? Were you unconvinced? Were you confused? Were you clear? Were you for? Were you against? Were you optimistic? Were you pessimistic? Were you confident? Were you concerned? Me too. <laughs> the basic fact of Jewish identity is the fear of annihilation. For better or for worse, and sometimes it's for the better and sometimes it's for the worse, this fear courses through our national veins like an ever-present malignancy. When we were born in Egypt, we were born into Pharaoh's decree of the killing of the first-born Jewish males. Moses should have died on the day of his birth, and with him, the entire future of our people. This week we celebrated Purim, another tale of Jewish annihilation that was prevented at the last moment. We were a raised scepter away from extinction. Israel was supposed to be the antidote to this fear. Israel was to ensure the vitality, viability, and longevity in perpetuity of the Jewish people. Of all the isms of the 20th century, Zionism was the most successful. The achievement is unprecedented in the entire annals of human civilization. The recreation and revivification of a scattered, oppressed people that had been left for dead countless times. But with all the extraordinary achievements of the state of Israel, it has not alleviated our fear of annihilation. In fact, to some degree, maybe the opposite we still fear being abandoned by our friends and still fear being left alone to confront the monsters. And thus the honest truth is that we Jews are deeply scarred by bitter experience repeated over and over again. It causes us to react with heightened emotions that are not always justified. Not every enemy of the Jews is a mortal enemy. Not every detractor of Israel is an anti-Semite. Not every critic of Judaism is out to get us. But many are. There are many anti-Semites. And there are many enemies of the Jews who are mortal enemies. And there's the rub. Our tradition draws attention to the words Sinai, Sinai, in Hebrew, and sin'ah, hatred. The sages pointed out what, that when Sinai, Torah, entered the, word, the world, sin'ah, hatred of Torah, also entered the world at the same time. It is a permanent feature of history. The rabbis intuited this already thousands of years ago. It is wrong to under, overestimate the peril, but it is foolish to underestimate it. And after the Holocaust, it is forbidden 
to take these threats lightly. If you want to see the long-lasting damage for yourself, come with us on our synagogue mission to Eastern Europe this summer. And I must say to you, if you have never felt this nagging fear on your heartstrings, if you have never experienced this existential angst, you have become too spoiled in this golden land of freedom. You have no idea of how the Jews of the world feel, and you have no idea about how the enemies of the Jews of the world feel. You've lost something vital of your Jewish essence. You need to study more. You need to open your mind more. It's strange to see how shocked American Jews are at rising anti-Semitism in Europe. It's a form of naivete that on a good day is kind of sweet and gentle. It shows how good we really have it here and how desperately we want the world to be good. But in the real world, in the world of policy, diplomacy, advocacy, and militancy, it is a fundamental flaw. Having said all of this, none of it necessarily justifies the most conservative, the most right-wing, the most suspicious, the most status quo policies. It does not necessarily mean that any given Israeli prime minister is right on any given issue as much as any American president is right on any given issue. It doesn't mean that every enemy of the Jews is Haman. It doesn't mean that every enemy of the Jews has the capacity of Haman to commit genocide. It doesn't mean that every enemy of the Jews has the determination to commit genocide. It doesn't even mean that every war that Israel fights, every military operation that Israel engages, is necessarily a war of extinction to the death. But what we need to remember is that Israel was created, in part, as a reaction to the futility of European enlightenment in resolving this festering disease of anti-Semitism. The pre-Herzl assumption that Herzl himself believed in was that the enlightened societies of Europe would shed their irrational exuberance for persecuting Jews. It didn't work. Disillusionment of enlightened Europe led to the birth of Zionism. If the age of reason would have, in fact, cured the disease of anti-Semitism as it claimed it would, Israel might not have come into being at all. One of the miraculous qualities of the Jews is that with all these rancid emotions directed at our people throughout the millennia, we never let pessimism overwhelm us. We never succumb to futility or despair. We dreamed, we created, we built. Everywhere we went, we sought to live life to the fullest. And despite it all, we never lost our optimism in the human condition. We believe in peace. We believe that societies can change. 
We believe in progress. We believe in reason. We believe that there are more good people than bad people in the world. We believe that enemies may lay down their arms and beat their swords into plowshares. As the rabbis teach, a Jewish hero is not a warrior on the battlefield. A hero in Judaism is a person who turns an enemy into a friend. We believe these things, not in passing. These are fundamental Jewish principles. With this as context, allow me to make some observation about the Prime Minister's speech. If you found yourself supporting the Prime Minister, here's what you must worry about. You must worry about the blatant electioneering being conducted in the hallowed halls of Congress two weeks before an Israeli election. All the protestations notwithstanding, do you think that is likely that politicians don't take politics into account? Do you think that there's a politician in the world who two weeks before a national election doesn't think of re-election and doesn't act accordingly? Does that pass the smell test for you? If you found yourself supporting the prime minister, Here's what you must also worry about. The American Jewish community is more polarized than ever. 70% of American Jews, 7 out of 10, voted for President Obama twice. In taking on the American president and the administration in such a public, in-your-face way, American Jews have been placed in this dangerous spot that we have always considered off-limits, forcing American Jews to choose. Already, the American Jewish community is losing influence. We are losing influence for many reasons. First and foremost, because our numbers are declining. But secondly, we are losing influence because we are increasingly polarized, not on any particular issue, but on the fundamental principles of the nature of Israeli society as a Jewish democracy committed to peace. Preserving the unified integrity of the Jewish community is in Israel's direct national interest. American foreign policy would be less sympathetic to Israel were it not for the constant effort of American Jews. To diminish or dilute the resolve of American Jewry is to weaken Israel's place among the nations. If you found yourself supporting the Prime Minister, here is what you must also worry about. The speech exacerbated the already existing relationship between the tension in the relationship between the Israeli government and the American administration. And it looks like the personal relationship between the prime minister and the president is beyond repair. To alienate the American administration in this way should only be taken in the most extreme cases of Israel's national interest. It should be done only as a last resort and only if the issue is existential and only if there is no alternative to exercise influence other than direct public confrontation with the American president and the administration. If you found yourself supporting the prime minister, here is what you must also worry about. Netanyahu's speech alienated many Democrats. To have 10% of Congress boycott the speech of an Israeli prime minister is unprecedented. 
there will be long-term repercussions, exacerbating an already growing challenge. That wing of the Democratic Party is represented by these congressmen and women who represent a critical component of American society. These are the liberal intellectual elites who are increasingly distanced from Israel. Many Jews are in this camp as well. We need them to catch a glimpse of what these Americans might think in a decade or so about Israel. All you need to do is to observe what their counterparts in Europe think about Israel. It would be catastrophic for America and for Israel. And therefore, whatever you think of Congresswoman Pelosi, and she is, after all, the leader of the Democratic minority in Congress and former Speaker of the House, all of us should be enormously concerned by her statement. She said, as one who values the U.S. Israel relationship and loves Israel. I was near tears throughout the Prime Minister's speech. It is enough to bring one to near tears. But finally, if you found yourself opposing the Prime Minister, here's what you should worry about. With all of the controversy and with all of the noise and with all of the disagreements on tactics, in the end, these are disagreements about how to best address the Iranian challenge. There is almost no disagreement in Israel about the agreement itself. None of the mainstream political parties up for election in 11 days disagrees with Netanyahu about the potentially catastrophic ramifications of the agreement about to be signed. And Israeli analysts assume that the deal is already done. Everything now is posturing. Many of Israel's former intelligence and military personnel have severely criticized the prime minister. But none of them have expressed support for Obama's contention that this is a good deal. Media reports indicate that many other Western security establishments are opposed to this deal as well for the same reasons including many American specialists. American allies in the Middle East are all opposed to this deal. They believe it to be hopelessly naive, demonstrating an unwillingness or an inability to comprehend the true nature of the Iranian regime. The two central problems that Netanyahu raised, that the Iranian nuclear infrastructure is left in place, and after 10 years, both inspections and sanctions are lifted, are devastating. With all respect to the president, to respond that this is the best deal available is not a response. It is submission. It rests on the assumption that by the time everything expires in 10 years, Iran will not want nuclear weapons despite their breakout threshold capacity, either because we believe that the Iranians who have always contended that they are not pursuing nuclear weapons are serious about that, or that in a decade there will be regime change in Iran and that new regime will, will be more sympathetic to the West. Do you believe that? 
pretty big risk to take. One may smile and smile and be a villain. Where you stand depends on where you sit. But even sitting in New York, Washington, Chicago, London, Paris, or Berlin, it's still a pretty big risk, let alone if you're sitting in Tel Aviv. The issues are so complicated. They are technical and secret. Few of us know the full details, and few of us understand the complexity of assembling nuclear weapons and monitoring and preventing their construction. Our tendency is to, to trust the experts who do know. I'll always remember my conversation with former Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. He visited New York in the mid-90s. He was out of office, just a rank-and-file member of Knesset who had come to the United States to lobby against Prime Minister Rabin's initiatives. We were all in favor. In the headquarters of the reform movement, we were already investing considerable resources in promoting the Oslo Accords. We were speaking in favor and lobbying in favor. Sharon came to lobby against. I went to see him because he was such an historic and at the time controversial and divisive figure that I wanted to hear from him directly why he was so opposed to the Oslo Accords. There were only a handful of us around the table. Few Jewish leaders even bothered to show up and spend time with someone who they assumed was already completely washed up. I asked Sharon why he was so opposed to the peace accords. Do you think that Rabin lost his mind? I asked. Rabin, who was the chief of staff, the defense minister, and the prime minister, was it conceivable that Rabin didn't see what Sharon saw? I'll never forget Sharon's response. In his no-nonsense, straightforward way, he answered, Never abandon your own judgment. The experts, too, can be wrong. I think that one of the key lessons of Jewish history is to take threats seriously. If someone says they want to kill Jews, we should believe them. If someone says they want to wipe Israel off the map, we should believe them. It doesn't mean they can. It doesn't mean there is no one to oppose them. It doesn't mean that we should exaggerate the threat. But we should have learned by now that to minimize the threat from those who are determined to carry it out is forbidden. And thus, we have the obligation to do whatever we can to prevent the threat from materializing from among all of the Jewish obligations in our post-Holocaust world. This is the first command. Take seriously every threat to kill Jews. It's what Mordechai said to Esther all those years ago. Do not imagine that you, of all the Jews, will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. And who knows? Perhaps 
you have attained this position for just such a crisis.